0: Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 24, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you just didn't happen to bring it with you, there's a white paperback paperback version in front of you, and that's on page 544. Again, Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Sertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than, it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. so I will always take pains to have a clear conscience both toward God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. with some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Jerusalem, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Has anybody ever heard the acronym FOMO,
1: F-O-M-O? Has anybody ever heard that before? F-O-M-O, it stands for Fear of of Missing Out. It's it's kind of, I guess it's a fairly new acronym, but it's an idea that's been around... Uh, forever. Uh, years ago when I was in sales training, they they always told us, they said, you need to make sure that when you're trying to sell something, you need to understand people's psychology. The psychology is that um, the fear of loss is greater than the desire for gain. So if somebody thinks that something is scarce or somebody thinks that something's about to you know, about to be gone, then they have a fear of missing out on that. The fear of missing out, it drives retail. You all are looking at me like, well, I don't really know what you're talking about. Well, okay, when was the last time that you went to the store and they said, oh, we've got plenty of this stuff, you just come on back whenever you want to? No, they say, for a limited time only, right? Buy one, get one free for a limited time only. Well, you didn't want one in the first place. Now you got to want two, right? I got caught up in that just this last week. Um, Miranda's kind of on to me about having too many books. And <laughs> she's got this thing about whenever I get one, she says that I need to get rid of one. and And I just, there's something wrong with that. But I got you know i've I've been trying to be better about not buying as many books, but when Amazon told me they only had two copies of that book left, I had to get it right, honey <laughs> but there is that fear of missing out there's that fear that you're going to lose out on something you know we we The, the TV shows, the newscasts, if you ever watch, like, any of the news channels, that, they'll always talk about some story that they're gonna show three commercials from now, right? And, and you can't miss that story. Oh, we got breaking news that's coming up three commercials from now. So the next thing you know, you're just sitting there mindlessly slogging through these endless, um, commercials of everything just so that you can get to a story that you didn't care about in the first place, just because they told you, you can't miss out on that. Fear of missing out. It drives retail, it drives ratings, it drives almost everything except evangelism. When was the last time you actually feared missing out on an evangelistic opportunity? When was the last time you actually feared missing out on sharing the gospel with somebody? When was the last time you feared missing out on an opportunity to share your faith? When was the last time you were as eager to share your faith with somebody as you were eager to not miss out on a sale, to save a few bucks at a sale? Yeah, I get amazed every every year people will camp out all night in front of a Best Buy or in front of a Walmart just so that they can get a cheap Xbox. Just for fear of missing out on that. How far will you go to keep from missing out on an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody? This morning our study through the book of Acts we've been <coughs> continuing this study for a while. And, and this study finds our, finds us in another one of Paul's trials there in Rome. He's now making his way from Jerusalem to his last stop there in Rome. And every step along the way, he experiences another trial, another trial before different government leaders. He's been transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, As a stop along the way, and he's going to be tried by a man named Felix, by the governor, the procurator there in Caesarea. Each one of these trials along the way has been different, has been difficult. Each one has involved imprisonment. Each one's involved hardship. It's involved pain. But even though each one of those trials involved all of those difficult circumstances for Paul, every time he saw each one of those as a unique opportunity. Now, how many times when we go through trials in life can we fail to see anything other than the trial? Paul saw these trials, all of these individual trials, not as just trials and difficult circumstances, but he saw them as opportunities, as opportunities to be the witness that God called him to be as an opportunity to share Jesus with people. And at each one of those opportunities, he didn't just sit back and say, hmm, I wonder, I wonder maybe I want, no, each one he was eager to seize that opportunity that God gave him. Even with a ruthless, ruthless government official like Felix. Now, let me tell you a little bit about, a little bit about Felix. It's not, you know, Felix sounds like a cat's name. And you can get this idea that he was some sort of a cuddly figure. No, Felix was, he was an absolutely ruthless individual. His full name was Marcus Antonius Felix. And he was, we've looked at Claudius Lysias uh, all through, all through this. He was, uh, Felix was Claudius Lysias' boss. He was based there in Caesarea. He was the Roman procurator of Judea, which was basically like their version of a governor. He was the one who, for Rome, politically oversaw that whole area of Judea. But even though he had that kind of a high position, he wasn't born into royalty. No, Felix was actually born into slavery. You've heard of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, right? Well, Mark Antony and Cleopatra had a daughter, and their daughter was Felix. Felix was born into slavery into Mark Antony's daughter's household. He was born a slave. But Mark Antony, for whatever reason, history doesn't really tell us, but for whatever reason, Mark Antony saw fit to give Felix his freedom. And as was the tradition, as was the custom, whoever gave a slave their freedom would give them their name. That's why he was called Marcus Antonius Felix. So Felix carried Mark Antony's name. So he had connections, and because of his connections and his competence and his cunning, he was brought into this position of power. He rose from slavery into this governor position. Make no mistake about it. In order to rise to that level in the Roman government, you had to be ruthless. And Felix was a ruthless man. The, the Roman Emperor Claudius appointed him to handle Judea, which Judea was <clears throat> it was known as a as a hotbed of, of riots and turmoil. The Jews didn't like being ruled by the Romans, so they would always have these little insurrections and these little rebellions going on. So when Felix was placed in that position, he was placed in that position for one reason only, because he was ruthless enough to squash any kind of rebellion or uprising that was happening in Judea. And he did it by some of the most cruel tactics possible. He was a peace at all cost kind of a guy. Here's how a first century historian named Tacitus described him. He said that Antonius Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. He was a ruthless man. And this lady that he was married to, Drusilla, (laughs) she wasn't exactly a kind person either. She was a ruthless woman. Now history's, history's kind of unclear on this. She was either his second wife or his third wife. We don't really know. It, it just, some records say one, some records say the other. But this much is sure. When Drusilla was 16 years old, Felix had designs on marrying this girl, but she was already married to another fella. So what Felix did was he got a sorcerer to go in and scare Drusilla and her husband into Separating, you know, by casting sp- spells or whatever it was, he convinced her <laughs> to leave him and come with and come and be Felix's wife. So the whole thing was built on intrigue and wickedness and all of that. Drusilla was one of three daughters of a fellow named Herod Agrippa the Her sister Bernice. We'll get introduced to her a little bit later in our study through the book of Acts, but her sister Bernice was involved in an incestuous relationship with their brother, King Agrippa II. Their father, their father, we've read about their father as we've gone through the book of Acts. Their father murdered James, the brother of John. He also tried to kill Peter. Her great uncle, Herod Antipas, He was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. And her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, you remember him from the Christmas story. He was the one who commanded all the baby boys under the age of three to be killed in Bethlehem. Oh, what a great family line that was, huh? Can you imagine? And here's Paul. He knows all this history, and he's standing there before these two. But instead of seeing that as an opportunity for fear or as an opportunity to shy away, knowing that if he said anything, he ran the risk of ending up like John the Baptist. No, Paul saw it not as something to be afraid of. He saw it as an opportunity. He saw it as a great opportunity. Yeah, he had this trial to deal with. But in this trial, Paul's objective, I don't know, I I haven't... not that I haven't ever been to court, (laughs) but when, if any of us was to go to court, I'm sure that our main objective would be to get the charges dropped or to get justice served. That wasn't Paul's main objective. Paul's main objective was not to get released from prison. Paul's main objective in this trial was to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw these people in front of him not just as his accusers, but he saw them as an opportunity to share Jesus with. And Paul was not going to miss out on that opportunity. Now, we've already read this passage once this morning. Thank you, Jacob, for reading that whole chapter to us. We're not going to go back and read this passage again verse by verse. That's why it's important for you to have it open in front of you to make sure that the things that I say or so. But here's the essence of what happened in the passage that we just read earlier. Claudius Lysias, you remember he was he he was the the Roman commander and he's the one that got word of a conspiracy to murder Paul there in Jerusalem and when he got word that Paul was going to be murdered there in Jerusalem, he packed him up and he shipped him off to Caesarea up to his boss. He kicked him up the food chain a little bit just so that <coughs> so that Paul wouldn't be killed there. And then Felix kept Paul under close guard, actually in his own palace, until this trial could happen. You need to understand, the only reason that Paul was being held and that he was being tried was because the Roman officials were trying to figure out what all this chaos was over Paul. They were trying to figure out why the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, were rioting and trying to kill Paul. You remember, Felix was a peace-at-all-cost guy. He was trying to figure out who caused this. Was it Paul that caused this riot, caused this disturbance? If it was, then we'll get rid of him. If it was the Jewish religious leaders, then we need to figure that out so that we can get rid of them. Whatever it was, he just wanted to quiet quiet that riot. (laughs) He, He wanted to still that storm. Yeah, there's a couple people who, um, need to repent for their music, <laughs> music taste, but he was a peace at all cost guy. So, so that, that, that was what this trial was for. It was to determine who was at fault here. So the trial was set and you can picture, you've watched enough court shows that you can, you can picture that Paul was the defendant on one side and, and Ananias, the Jewish high priest, the Jewish chief priest, (coughs) was the accuser. So the stage is set there. And Ananias, as the chief accuser, he came prepared. He came loaded for bear. He had the best lawyer, this this fellow by the name of Tertullus, had him there to argue his case for him. He had Johnny Cochran of the day to argue his case for him. And he started his proceedings with an opening statement. And what an opening statement it was. He, he spent about half of his opening statement buttering up the judge. In verses 2-3, through three, he says, "...since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude." You want to talk about kissing up. Now remember... Felix is ruthless. He was especially ruthless to the Jews. And here's this lawyer arguing on the case of the Jews, and he's buttering them up like that, saying, Oh, you've been you've been just most gracious, Felix. Whoever said that politics made strange bedfellas, they were absolutely right. And here the Jewish leaders and ruthless Felix were in bed together. Look at the words that Tertullus used to describe Paul there in verse five. In verse five he said that he described Paul as stirring up riots. And then later on he called him a ringleader. Those were buzzwords, those were trigger words. Those were words that the lawyer was using to trigger Felix, to make Felix understand that Paul is the one who's stirring up all the trouble here. They were intentionally being used by that lawyer to remind Felix of his own history. See, Felix's predecessor was a, uh, was a man named Cuminus. During Cuminus' time in, in office, this Samaritan had murdered a Jew, and out of that riot, over 30,000 Jews were killed in a, in a riot during that time. So here's basically what Tertullus was saying. Tertullus, when he was arguing to Felix, he was saying, um, Felix, do you remember what happened to your predecessor? You remember how one fella Stirred up all the Jews and there are all these Jews that were killed and then your predecessor got fired. You remember that? You don't, you don't want to be like your predecessor, do you? Verse nine says that after Totullus made his argument that the whole gallery of Jews basically cheered it on, cheered him on. They joined in the charge. Well, (laughs) I'm not a lawyer, but that's a pretty effective opening statement, isn't it? That set, that set the stage. And now it was time for the defense team. So the defense team rise. Oh wait, there wasn't a team, was there? It was just Paul. Battered, bruised, beaten. Now it's been a chapter or so since we saw that Paul was bruised and battered and beaten, but don't forget that he's standing there just a few days later, bruised and battered and beaten all by himself. But wait a minute, Paul wasn't all by himself, was he? He had Jesus' promise from Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Jesus promised when any of his children are in a situation like that. He said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Paul had a defense team with him, didn't he? He had the Holy Spirit with him. Here's something that we need to understand. You know, we're we're not going to find ourselves in the next week Standing before a tribune like this, probably, but we will find ourselves with an opportunity to share the gospel and thinking that we don't have that we don't have the words to say we, we need to understand that when God opens the door of opportunity for you to share the gospel, he doesn't just leave you standing there by yourself he he is with you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, if God is going to give you the opportunity, if you're willing to seize the opportunity that He gives you, He will give you the words to say in that moment. Amen? Amen? The words that God gave Paul that day were clear and they were plain and they were to the point. He didn't butter up, he didn't flatter like Tertullus did. Now all Paul did was he systematically answered each one of the specific charges that had been laid against him. In verse 18 he said, look, when I was at the temple, there wasn't any crowd there. So it wasn't like I was stirring up any kind of riot by anything that I was doing. There wasn't a crowd there. All I was doing was worshiping God. And then he reminded Felix that the, the Jews from Ephesus who had followed him all the way to Ephesus and had laid this charge against him, he reminded the judge that they're not even here to make the accusation. And Romans, just like one of the things that our legal system has pulled from the Roman legal system, is that we are allowed to have our to be able to face our accuser in trial. So Paul was saying, look, they're not even here, so how can you bring a charge against me when they're not even here? And then in verse 21, Paul told Judge Felix that the only reason that he was on, t- on trial was because of a religious doctrinal dispute. But he didn't use those words, did he? What-, what he said there in verse 21, he said it in a gospel way. He said, look, the only reason that I'm being charged here is with respect to the resurrection of the dead. And I'm on trial here before you this day. See, this was a public trial. This wasn't an opportunity for Paul to stand up on a platform and present a full or full-orbed gospel presentation. But he did have the opportunity to speak gospel truth, didn't he? See, not every time that we get to stand up or get to address somebody, not... Every time are we going to be able to give a full orbed gospel presentation, but there is always room for gospel truth. We just have to take advantage of it. We just have to seize that opportunity. Paul was able to proclaim first that he worshiped the God of the Bible. He was able to proclaim that his hope was in the God of the Bible. And he was able to proclaim that one day there's going to be a final reckoning when both the just and the unjust will be resurrected from the dead. That's a lot of gospel truth, isn't it? And he was able to present that as he was presenting his own defense. Like I said, it wasn't a complete gospel presentation. He didn't just, you know, preach... Uh, you know, preach the full Romans road and then follow it with 14 verses of just as I am. No, he just was able to put gospel truth, able to season his defense with gospel truth. His opportunity was limited, but he took full advantage of the limited opportunity that he had. Listen to me. God gives each of us Opportunities to witness, to be a witness for Him every day of our lives. Some of those are opportunities to fully share the complete good news of Jesus Christ. I wish that those opportunities were more frequent than they are. But many of the opportunities that we have, I would say most of the opportunities that we have, aren't an opportunity to fully share a complete gospel presentation. Sometimes you only have the opportunity to share just a little bit that you worship Jesus, that you worship the God of the Bible. Sometimes you only have the opportunity to briefly share the hope that you have in Him. Sometimes you might have the opportunity to remind somebody that the injustice that we see all around us in the world today is not the way that it's going to always be. That one day Jesus will return and deal with both the just and the unjust. One day He'll return and He'll make all things right. Sometimes that's the only opportunity that we have to share. Sometimes you'll only have the opportunity to share just a snippet of the good news of Jesus Christ. But no matter how big or how small the opportunity that you have is, you always have opportunities to share. The only question is, is what are you doing with those opportunities? What am I doing with those opportunities? What are we doing with the opportunities that we have? I pray that we we'll start to fear missing out on gospel opportunities far more than we fear missing out on opportunities to buy a book or a dress or an Xbox. I pray each of us will have a gospel FOMO. Well, Paul's trial here, it ended with a hung jury. Well, there wasn't really a jury, so the jury couldn't be hung, but you get the point, right? It ended with no verdict being named. Felix said, he said, look, I know about this way. I know about Christianity. (laughs) And here's the reality. When we begin to share the gospel with people, when we begin to have gospel conversations with people, there are a lot of people, most of the people around us will claim that they, quote, know Jesus. They know Jesus because maybe Mama took them to church or they went to VBS or... They saw a televangelist on TV or something like that. But just because they say that they know him doesn't mean that they know Jesus. Doesn't mean that they have a personal relationship with Jesus. Felix knew about Christianity, but it was obvious that he didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. He had some head knowledge about Jesus, but his heart and his will hadn't come close to following. So he did what a lot of people do. You see what he did there? He procrastinated, didn't he? First, he procrastinated judgment in the legal case because he knew it was a legal hot potato, so he just said, well, you know, we'll decide this later. Instead of issuing a ruling, he put Paul under house arrest and he just kept him there to rot for over two years. But you remember those tiny little gospel seeds that Paul planted in his defense? during that case, because Paul seized the little bit of opportunity that he had. It sparked some gospel interest in Felix. As hard as Felix's heart was, and as hard of a heart as his wicked wife Drusilla's heart was, those two hard hearts were drawn by the Holy Spirit to hear more from Paul. Well, you can call it curiosity, or you can call it whatever you want to, but the fact is that those little gospel seeds were used by the Spirit of God to draw them to want to hear more. Verse 24 says, They sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. See, this time, the initial opportunity was just an opportunity for little little snippets of the gospel. But this time he was able to give a full-orbed gospel presentation to Felix and Drusilla. Taking advantage of that initial opportunity was used by the Lord to open up a door of greater opportunity. Verse 25 says he gave a well-reasoned presentation. The first thing that he proclaimed was he proclaimed righteousness. Now you remember these two cats that he was standing in front of, and he proclaims righteousness to the most wicked people that you could imagine. That means that He told Felix and Drusilla, He told them that in and of ourselves, our best attempts at righteousness fall short of the righteousness that God requires of us. Our attempts at justice, our attempts at righteousness, and our attempts at being a good person, those things are our attempts at, those are an insult to the holiness of our Creator God. What he's saying is that that means that we're sinners. And because we're sinners, we must have the righteousness of another supernaturally applied to us. And Jesus provided that. He provided that the only way that it could possibly happen when He took on our sins on the cross of Calvary and rose again to Clothe us in His righteousness. He died to take away our sin, and He lives today to clothe us in His righteousness. And then Paul moves from talking about righteousness to talking about (laughs) self-control. Do you think Felix and Drusilla had much self-control? Talk about bold preaching. Judging by Felix and Drusilla's history, they didn't have any self-control. As a matter of fact, apart from Christ, none of us have any self-control. It's impossible, apart from Christ, to have any real, true self-control. We can catch glimpses of it, and we can, we, we can work to do some reform and those kinds of things and, and fight against the flesh in and of ourselves. We can fight against that a little bit. We can catch glimpses of it. But real self-control self-emptying self-control, that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us from the moment of salvation. The Bible describes self-control as one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that's given to us by the Spirit at the moment of salvation. In other words, true self-control only comes from emptying ourselves and being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Biblical self-control is really yielding our own control to the will of God who controls us. So point one of Paul's sermon, righteousness. Point two of Paul's sermon, self-control. Point three of Paul's sermon, coming judgment. Paul told Judge Felix that one day he's going to meet Jesus as his final judge. This is the man who was standing in judgment over Paul. And Paul stands and tells him, one day you're going to meet Jesus as judge. One day all of our lack of righteousness in and of ourselves is going to be revealed. One day all of our lack of self-control, all of our selfish attempts at trying to have self-control, all of that one day is going to be revealed. One day God will show us exactly how far we've fallen short of His holiness and His glory One day He will show us our sin. The true depth and the true nature of our sin. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from the God who created us in a place called hell. But... The grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from that eternity in hell. Now Paul, God had given Paul an opportunity to share just little bits and pieces of the good news of Jesus Christ During his trial, and Paul seized that opportunity in as bold of ways as it was possible for him to seize that opportunity. And then later on, God gave Paul the opportunity to share fully the gospel to Felix and Drusilla, and he boldly seized that opportunity. Are you seizing every opportunity that the Lord gives you to share the gospel? No matter whether it's little pieces or whether it's a full-orbed presentation of the gospel. Are you taking advantage of every opportunity that the Lord gives you? Are you even recognizing those opportunities when God puts them in front of you? If you're a believer, I want to give us a challenge here this morning. And it's a prayer pattern that I learned from Chuck Kelly, the uh, immediate past president of the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, um, for, for years, Dr. Kelly taught people to pray what he calls the Monday morning prayer. And I'm going to challenge us to pray this prayer at least once a week. First, ask God to give you the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody this week. That's the first part of the prayer. Second part of the prayer, ask God to give you the wisdom to recognize the opportunities that He's going to give you. And the third part of the prayer is ask God to give you the boldness to seize the opportunities when they come. Fellow believer, I'm going to ask you to start praying that prayer with me. Will you do that? At least shake your head. this passage is really a display of two different reactions to the opportunities that God provided. See, Paul was faithful to seize the opportunity to share the good news with Felix and Drusilla. But Felix and Drusilla, they failed to seize their opportunity to believe the good news of Jesus. Verse 25, Felix told Paul just terrifying words. He told Paul, he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. When I get an opportunity. He had the opportunity right there in front of him. He failed to take that opportunity. See, here's the problem. Felix and Drusilla's only opportunity to respond to the gospel that we know of was right then. Not later. There is no indication in Scripture that they ever got to hear the gospel again. The last thing that we hear about them is that Felix was fired and he was succeeded by a man named Festus. Listen to me. If you have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior, the time for you to do it is... Now. The opportunity that you have to respond to the gospel is now. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Because here's the reality. If one, if we have learned one thing this week, we know that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today, is the day of salvation. And even if you were guaranteed tomorrow, just because the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus now doesn't mean that He's going to keep drawing you forever. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will not strive with men forever. If you keep telling the Holy Spirit of God to go away for the present, He just might go away and leave you alone forever. This morning, God has given me the opportunity to present the gospel to you. And to the best of my limited ability, I have seized that opportunity. But today, God has also given you the opportunity to believe that good news and to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master and Savior. I am begging you, don't tell the Holy Spirit to go away. Today is your opportunity. Seize the opportunity that you have right now because the fact is you might not get another Today, as Scripture says, if you've heard His voice, do not harden your heart.